My name is Tim Morrow, and I'm a member here. Today we're continuing our series in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word for us today. Well, we are in a five-week series together called Made Righteous, where we focus on just these 10 verses together. Chapter 3 of Romans, from verse 21 to 31, and each week we are going to focus on a different concept, a key concept at work together in this 10-verse section. And in all of this, we are made to see how it is that God goes about making sinful people righteous together as we get ready to consider this idea of propitiation. Father, this message that we are preparing to consider is frankly a very peculiar message. It is peculiar in all the most glorious ways, to be sure, but it is peculiar. It has a way of shaking us out of our spiritual sleep and helping us to see the real stakes of our life and your creation and your great work to redeem it, God. And so I pray that this time would even have that effect in the lives of some, that they would come to see not only what the cross looked like or involved, but, but all that it means both throughout eternity and, and even for them personally today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Where as our culture grows less and less fond of Christianity, even as it does, it is hard to go even a single day without seeing the symbol of a cross. Crosses are often found on the headstone of even the least religious people we know. Uh, they are depicted in tattoos and on necklaces and, of course, the exteriors of church buildings like ours and some hospitals. Everywhere we look, we see crosses. 
But I'm not quite sure the meaning of the cross is as well known as the symbol itself. Theology aside, even, it it is at least interesting that so many take such great comfort in this religious symbol of a brutal tool of execution to which an ancient empire used to nail living human beings as they hung in bloody humiliation until they asphyxiated. This is what we send people when we send them a quaint little sympathy card, right, with a cross on the front of it. Here, I hope this torture tool helps you feel a little better. Isn't this cute? To say the very least, it's a strange symbol for so many to celebrate. But as we turn to the pages of Scripture, we do see why that is. The more familiar you become with the Bible, and particularly with the New Testament, the more you will come to see that the cross is not just one of many significant events in the story of Scripture, along with sort of the Garden of Eden and the parting of the Red Sea. No, instead, it is the central event and really the entire purpose of the Bible's storyline. And today, we are going to see this cross is also the key to understanding how God makes sinful people righteous. So we are going to consider with Paul what really took place on that cross. And here I don't just mean the physical details, but more so the spiritual ones. How can a God use a Roman cross of all things to make sinful people righteous, to to give them eternal life? Maybe you've wondered this for yourself. Uh, Maybe in Scripture uh, you've seen the cross sort of seems to be the answer to all the problems, but, but the question is, is it really enough for you? Was it just some historical event? Is it just a religious icon, or is it really God's solution for you to be made righteous. Last week we saw Paul began this letter by arguing that we are all unrighteous. We are not righteous. But again, this was a response to some serious cultural tensions that existed in these churches between the Jewish members of the church and non-Jewish Christian members of the church. And the point was that the entire Gentile world was unrighteous and under God's judgment, which would not have been particularly controversial to most. But also, so were the Jewish people, Paul said, even in spite of their heritage and their history. Now, that would not have necessarily been news to even a first century Jew, at least one who knew his Bible. Again, Paul, throughout Romans 1, 2, and into 3, is is quoting multiple passages from the Old Testament in order to make this very point. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 24, take a look with me. It says, for as it is written, he even says, and then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, who was written hundreds of years before, says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, referring to the Jewish people. So it's, it's not as though God's judgment against the Jews was some new or surprising change. It's that the Jews often lost sight of their own sinfulness. They were inclined to think they were maybe more righteous, at the very least, than the Gentile world because of their special covenant relationship that they had with God, which is undeniably true they did have this special covenant relationship. But at the center of this religious pride is a kind of sense of superiority, which is really ultimately rooted in the law. 
And when you think of the law, you should think of the Torah, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, or even more specifically, God's commands to Israel in the first five books of the Bible, uh, sort of culminating in the Ten Commandments, those tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Many Jews were very proud that of all the people on earth, God gave that law to them. But as Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by the breaking of the law. You see that? In other words, the problem was not that the law had failed or that God had somehow turned his back on the Jews or changed his mind after giving them the law. No, the law was never meant to make even Jewish people truly righteous. That, that was not the reason God had given it to them. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, right before our passage, he says, for by works of the law, which means it's by doing the things that the law has said, no human being will be justified. None of them will be made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law was not supposed to be a source of pride for the people of Israel. As if they were superior because God had given it to them. Instead, it was meant to be a source of humility. So that as they fell short of God's law over and over, that law would serve as a constant reminder that they were not more righteous than any of these other people, that they were really part of God's great plan to redeem all of these other people, and therefore they, like all the other Gentile world, were desperately in need of being made righteous. This is the whole point of the sermon from last week on everything leading up to Genesis 3.21 here. Whether we are Jews who were born under the law or we are Gentiles who were born without it, doesn't matter, we, were all, we are all deserving of God's just condemnation and it's specifically because, as Paul says, none is righteous, no, not even one. But now, he says in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, listen, this is a different kind of righteousness altogether that has sort of broken into the world from a totally different kind of source. This is from God himself. And his righteousness, as Paul says, is apart from the law which means this otherworldly kind of righteousness, it really has nothing to do. It has no bearing on, on our obedience or, or our disobedience to God's law whatsoever. That's not how this righteousness operates because, again, it's, it's not even our righteousness at all. It doesn't belong to us. Although, Paul adds, and this is so important, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, here... Paul is speaking directly to the Jewish members of this church who may have accused Paul of preaching some new or novel message that in some way undermined the testimony of the Old Testament. Here Paul is saying, when he says law, he's referring to the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, by prophets he means the last 16 books of the Old Testament. So he's basically saying, listen, no, 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 friends, Nothing I am saying here about how we're made righteous is in any way at odds with the Old Testament. This is not a departure from the Scriptures at all. This is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. If you read the Law and the Prophets correctly, they are all pointing us here 
to this incredible display of God's righteousness on the cross. And it is by that display of God's righteousness that sinners are made righteous. For there is no distinction, he continues, look with me at verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's last week, right? Righteousness will never come from within us. So how will we be justified? Here's how. And we are justified, made righteous by his grace as a gift. We're going to cover that part in two weeks, okay? Grace. Today, here's our focus. We are justified, made righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. I want us to slow it down a little bit for us. Connect some of these dots, okay? Sinful, unrighteous people are made righteous by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that redemption took place because God put him forward as a, quote, propitiation by his blood. This is how God makes sinful people righteous. He redeems them by propitiation. See this? Redemption by propitiation. This is the focus of our sermon today, and I'm convinced it is the most important truth. Then that's it, that period. That's the end of the sentence. It is the most important truth, but of course, to make sense of all this, we have to consider what is redemption and what is propitiation. First, what is redemption? Well, obviously, it's the name of our church, (laughs) right? So we think it's pretty important. But redemption is really an interesting word that most modern people are familiar with. However, we tend to use it in a very generic way that is, frankly, a lot less meaningful than the way that Paul is using it here and the way that it's used throughout the whole of the Bible. In, In most people's minds, to redeem a situation, for example, is just to reverse it. It's to turn it from a bad situation to a good situation, as in, hey, my favorite sports team, they were down by 20 points, and then they totally redeemed themselves, and then they end up winning the game, right? Now, this is not necessarily inaccurate. Redemption does involve a reversal, but it is so incomplete a definition, it's not a particularly helpful way to use the word. In the first century, redemption was a technical economic term that referred to the liberation of slaves. In particular, a redemption was a legal exchange in which someone paid a ransom to set a slave free. And so this is precisely what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. He was paying a penalty on that cross so that we can be set free from the curse of sin and our slavery to sin. As the same Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, listen carefully to this, It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself, it says, as a ransom for all. Now, I want you to notice, it's not just that Jesus paid a ransom. It's that he himself was the ransom. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, throughout the church, some have wondered if Jesus was paying this ransom to Satan, since it would seem that he might be responsible for our enslavery, enslavement to sin. Uh, it's at least an understandable question to ask, but it has almost universally been rejected. Uh, and here, again, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5 and 6, we can see that um, Jesus paid this ransom as a mediator 
Paul says, between God and men. But this is what Paul means when he says that we are made righteous through the redemption that's in Christ. What he means is that he gave his life as a payment of some type so that we could be set free from sin. Now, but what does it mean that he redeems us by propitiation? Now, this is where it starts to make sense why this payment had to be made to God. What is propitiation? Uh, seminary president and author Ligon Duncan defines it this way. He says, propitiation involves averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. Say it again, by averting the wrath of God by the offering of a, of a gift. So where redemption focuses on a payment that sets us free from slavery, propitiation focuses on God's wrath toward us being satisfied in the death of Christ. This is an ancient ceremonial word which in its context points us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Israel in the Old Testament was instructed, again, by God in his law of all places, to sacrifice animals, often goats or lambs. And the central purpose of the sacrificial killing of these animals was one of propitiation. Basically, the idea is here, God, take the life of this lamb instead of pouring out your wrath on us. Let your judgment fall on this lamb so that we can keep living and, and carry on in covenant with you even though we're sinful and rebellious and unrighteous. This is the idea of propitiation. A sacrifice is made to God to satisfy his wrath so that it doesn't come crashing down on us. This is precisely what Jesus has done for you, friend, on the cross. Until we understand this and see our need for it, listen, the cross will do us little good. God's righteous son was condemned for us so that we could be made righteous like him. This is our claim of this text this morning. This is why, church, as he hung there on that cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The physical pain of his crucifixion was not the only sense in which he suffered for us. In a far more spiritual, invisible way, in the experience of this crucifixion, the Father turned his back on his Son, in the way that we deserve to have God turn his back on us, the sinless, righteous son of the living God was crushed by his father. Because as Paul says here, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, for all of history, God had not poured out his wrath on humanity as we deserve, even though he could have done it justly, as we talked of last week. He did not. Instead, he patiently, lovingly sat by as we profaned his name and made a mess of his creation, all the while storing up the condemnation that our sin demands so that in this very moment, he could pour out all of that wrath on this one man, Jesus Christ. 
While Jesus hung there on that bloody cross, we read it's as if he was entering into a heavenly tabernacle, not made with human hands, to be sacrificed to God as the final, ultimate Passover lamb. Even happened on Passover week. After all those years and all those lambs and all that propitiation, the hope was that this one human lamb would finally settle it. That his sacrificial death would satisfy God's just condemnation for our sins once and for all so that we can finally be set free and made righteous. So that we could be, friends, redeemed by propitiation. Church, this is a flawless solution. This is a flawless solution. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, every dot of history is connected and every desperate need of the human heart is both met and surpassed. And the more we consider it, the more we explore its meaning, the more we will discover this is the only hope we have of escaping God's judgment and being made truly righteous. So with all that said, I just want to spend the rest of our time reflecting on three takeaways here, three reasons that Jesus was crucified for you. And maybe also untangle a few common objections that might prevent us from believing these things. First, Jesus was crucified, number one, to absorb the just condemnation you deserve. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this one because it's, it's, it's one that is particularly difficult for many to stomach, especially these days. And yet so much of our faith hangs on this very idea. So much of it. This is really the very essence of what propitiation means. It's also what Paul meant in uh, the very famous 1 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Right? The sinless Jesus was treated as if he was sin itself. Why? What good would that do, right? Here's why. So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. So in some circles, it's popular these days to sort of question this aspect of the atonement. Or as theologians would refer to it, the doctrine of penal substitution. Sounds like a fancy word. It's, it's really not. Penal just means it's a penalty. Substitution just means in our place, right? He was condemned for us so that we could be made righteous like him. And some would say, well, that makes no sense. Or even worse, some would say, well, if it's true, actually, then this God of the Bible is is not good at all. He must be an angry, vengeful, hot-tempered sort of God, as if all he really needs to help us overcome this problem of sin is just to let off a little steam here. And so he lets that steam off on Jesus. Some would even say a message like this, this doesn't reveal the righteousness of God. There's a, there's a phrase that's often used, kind of coined in the last couple decades and thrown around, that this is, this is divine child abuse, some would say. Almost without fail, what happens is that some brilliant theologian or Christian recording artist learns that Jesus accomplished quite a few things by dying on the cross, uh, which is undeniably true. He showed us the perfection of love, undeniably. He conquered the forces of sin and evil without question. Listen, there's no end to what Jesus accomplished 
in his death on the cross. But as they start to explore these other theories, as they're often called, of the atonement, they pit these other ideas against this idea, the idea of redemption by propitiation, as if, well, it's just those grumpy, unenlightened Christians who are foolish enough to believe a thing like that. That's mean and naughty. Particularly in our day of radical, expressive individualism, uh, where the greatest possible evil is to suggest that anyone is objectively immoral or sinful, let alone deserving of wrath. The truth is these other theories of the atonement, as, as true and glorious as they are, are frankly more attractive to us. Uh, Jesus can show us how to love, for example. He can conquer the forces of evil, whether or not we need to be made righteous at all. Meanwhile, the only reason he would have to appease God's wrath is if sinful people like us actually deserve it. So is this really true? Did Jesus die on the cross to absorb the wrath that you deserve? Well, the law and the prophets sure seem to bear witness to it. Here's the coming Messiah that the prophet Isaiah pointed forward to hundreds of years before Christ. He, wrote, he writes this, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned aside every one to his own way. Paul just quoted this earlier. And the Lord has laid, listen, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That right there is penal substitution clearly taught from the pages of the Old Testament. Church, the prophets bear witness to the propitiation of cross, Christ on the cross. Not to mention throughout the ages, Christians of all traditions have believed and taught this same thing. Here's Augustine who writes, Christ, though guiltless, took our punishment that he might cancel our guilt and do away with our punishment. That's from the fourth century. Here's Gregory of Nyssa. But if he had not himself undertaken a death not due to him, he would never have freed us from one that was justly due to us. And so whereas the Father is righteous in punishing a righteous man, he ordereth all things righteously. It's the sixth century. Friends, this is a profound and mysterious thing. It is not easy to wrap your minds around. That may be, but we must if we are to be made righteous. Listen, Jesus did not just die to save you from sin or from spiritual darkness or bad habits you have or any other long list of, of terrible things. Listen carefully. Jesus died to save you from God, from the condemnation you deserve because of your sin and your unrighteousness. One final aside here that I think is, is pretty important. You might ask, well, how can God the Father pour out his wrath on God the Son and still be a good and loving Father? How does that work? And, and church, this is where we just need to let, leave room for the mystery and the wonders 
of a God who is far beyond us and wholly other than us. God is father, for example, that's true, but it does not mean that the relationship with his son is exactly the same as a human father's relationship with his son. You may have noticed, for example, my son Lewis and I are just totally separate beings. Uh, Together, we are not part of an eternal triune Godhead. Uh, We're very close, him and I, uh, but we are not inseparable, and we are not one in the same mysterious and glorious way that the Father is one with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so, sure, it may be hard to imagine a scenario in which a human father would violently kill his son and still be a good and loving human father, although I would remind you that is precisely what God told Adam to do with his son Isaac in order to test his faith in God. Not to mention, Trinity aside, this charge of divine child abuse is often made as if Jesus were somehow an unwilling participant in all of this. That could not be further from the truth. He specifically tells us in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Listen, God the Father and God the Son were in lockstep on that cross. They were working together in unique, distinct, but harmonious ways to accomplish this redemption by propitiation. But maybe if you're honest, your hesitations with the cross are far more personal than they are theological. Maybe in your heart of hearts, you just feel like, listen, I just want God to love me and to tell me I'm good. I want to feel like he accepts me, like he validates me. Listen, that's, that's what I feel I really need. Friend, listen, this, this is so much better than that. This is so much better than that. There is no greater way this God could possibly love and accept you than to give his own life in your place, even in your least lovable, most unacceptable state. See, all of this comes down to whether or not we will accept the condemnation that we deserve, that God says we deserve. All of it. If we accept that, then we will see the beauty of Christ's propitiating work. If we don't, then the cross will smell like folly and death to us. And that should not surprise us either. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So will you embrace the condemnation God says you deserve? And more than that, will you let Jesus bear the weight of it for you? Or will you scoff at this whole idea as if God the Father sending his son to be crucified is just brutal and unnecessary, beneath you even? Friends, as peculiar as this message is, that could not be further from the truth. And this is what we're going to see next in point number two. Jesus was crucified to show you just how righteous God truly is. Maybe you've been wondering for most of your life what this God is truly like. Is he really kind of an angry, vindictive God? Is he sort of just nebulous and distant? Or is he holy and is he righteous? Maybe even more so, you've wondered, how in the world do I even go about trying to find an answer to a question like that? 
Well, friends, this is where the Bible says we should look to find our answer. It's to the cross, where the righteousness of God has been manifest for all to see. If you want to know what this God is like, friend, gaze at the wonders of this cross and behold, he is truly righteous. Which again, specifically means that he is holy and pure enough to devote himself to a covenant people, a covenant relationship with those who are unrighteous, and he is holy and pure enough to commit to that people and that covenant no matter what the cost. That is the message of the cross. That is what Jesus wants all of us to hear him saying loud and clear as he hangs there on that wooden cross. He is saying, here, I will keep this covenant for you. I will bear the weight of your sin. I will face the wrath of my father. I will handle all of it. On the cross, the mercy and justice of God meet in the most perfect, glorious way imaginable. And if we can clear away any doubts or suspicions that keep us from taking this message seriously, well then as we contemplate this message revealed to us in Scripture and all that it means, then it is here, friends, it is in this message of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we can most clearly see who this God truly is and what he is truly like. But maybe you're still skeptical. Maybe you have some of these objections that we covered in the last point. Just try, if you would, just try to suspend your disbelief, even if just for a moment, and allow your mind to ponder what this God would be like if the death and resurrection of Jesus really did accomplish all this book says it accomplished. If we are truly all unrighteous and fully deserving of wrath, and he did send his son to take on human flesh just so that he could absorb that for us, and then he did rise again, making it possible for us to be made righteous like him, is this not the kind of God that you would want to know and worship? Unbelieving friend, listen, that is the point of the cross. That's the whole point. God has revealed his righteousness. He has made himself and his character known for all to see, and he's done it through the crucifixion of his son, Jesus. So doubts notwithstanding, listen, it is your turn to respond. Now, we will turn in our attention in the coming weeks to what Paul says about that response and how that all works. At the very least, before you reject this message about our crucified God, man, which you're entitled to do, this morning, I at least want you to make sure you fully understand what it is you're rejecting. By hearing this good news and then rejecting it, you are turning down what Paul calls here the righteousness of God made manifest. You are turning down God's gracious offer to bear the full weight of every dark and destructive thing you've ever thought or said or done. To reject this gospel is to turn down God himself in human flesh as he bleeds and dies for you. I'm reminded of this line from a song we love to sing together, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It says, 
What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. There is no more. Friends, God is not sitting on some other better revelation of his righteousness. There is no better revelation of his righteousness. This is it. If we reject this message of his crucified son, that is all he has to offer us. There will be no hope of reconciliation, no other hope of being made righteous, because next, in point three, we're going to see Jesus was also crucified to make your righteous obedience possible. He had to die as a righteous, sinless substitute so that we could live in righteousness like him. After all this talk about how the law is not the way we're made righteous, but rather faith in the redeeming, propitiating work of Christ, I want you to look with me at verse 31, what Paul says last here. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. See, this good news of the gospel, it is so scandalous and it is so seemingly backwards and peculiar that many will hear it and kind of be led to wonder, wait a minute, so is God okay with my sin? Can I just kind of go on living this way then? Right? If Christ died for me while I was yet sinful, is that, is that enough? Do I actually have to stop sinning now? Paul addressed this back in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? It's easy to confuse these messages. Here's his response. Their condemnation is just. You see that? In other words, he doesn't, even, he doesn't even engage the argument. He basically says, that's ridiculous and wicked, and I'm going to go ahead and move on. And it is. It is ridiculous and wicked because Christ did not die for our sins so that we can go on sinning. He really did die so that we can be made righteous like him. We're going to talk more in the weeks ahead again about why and how this is all possible and in what sense we now have access to this righteousness of God. We'll get to that. For now, though, I just want you to see the crucifixion of Jesus was not just about getting us out from underneath the punishment we deserve. It was also about giving us access to the power we need for holiness. And that power, namely the, the heavenly righteousness of God, it's not found in some philosophy out there in the world or wherever else you may look. It is found in this message, the message of his death and resurrection. And, and listen, here's what this means. It means if you are disappointed by a lack of holiness in your life or discouraged by a persistent pattern of sin that you just can't seem to shake no matter what. Friends, listen, this is what you need today. You need to hear this. What you need most of all is not a better strategy or set of life goals. What you need, most of all, is not more personal discipline or a better set of life circumstances. What you need is not even relief from the burdens and stresses that might compel you toward that kind of sin. None of these things will rescue you from your unrighteousness. None of this will satisfy the wrath that God has set against you justly because of your sin. What you need is a righteous substitute. A heavenly king who will take your sin upon himself and give you his righteousness in exchange. There is a path for us 
to a holy and righteous life that far surpasses even our most optimistic hopes and expectations. But that path always leads to this cross. Now, as Christians, does that mean we can be perfect? Will we still wrestle with sin? Yes, we will wrestle with sin until we are resurrected to eternal life with Christ. But even then, even as we fight and struggle against our ongoing sins as Christians, this crucified God-man is our hope. As John writes in his letter, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. That's the aim. A righteous life is the aim. But he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He, he says, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Church, listen, it's not just that Jesus showed us God's righteousness one time by dying on the cross. After dying in this way, in our place, he also rose again to a new, eternally righteous life so that he can keep keeping this covenant for us every day till our dying breath. Oh, the wonders of the cross of Jesus Christ.